You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then then both their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the grounds from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way 
to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, my kids are at the age where they love writing and telling stories. Right now they're going through a comic book phase. And uh, it's fun as a dad to watch, like look over their shoulder and, and watch their creativity. They, they tell some goofy stories. Um, if you're into fart jokes, this is really your market here because it's just full of them. Um, and, and as goofy and silly as these stories are, um, they're boring. I can say they're not here right now. So they're just, actually, I've told them already. The stories are kind of boring um, because they haven't figured out the traits of a good story arc, right? The storyline that draws you in, that makes you wonder what's going on, what's happening next. And, and the reason why their stories are boring is because there's no conflict. There's no trouble. And trouble is a crucial part of the stories that we love. Lord of the Rings, why is it so, why is it so captivating? Well, there's trouble. Star Wars, the Titanic, Rudy, why it, there's trouble there that draws us in and, and longs for some kind of resolution. Now, why is it that we're so drawn to these stories? Well, why is it that trouble does something to us that, that kind of makes us lean in a little bit? Well, it's because these stories echo our reality. We are smack dab in the middle of one big story that the Bible is telling. And this story is full of trouble. Today, as we come to Genesis chapter 3, we are looking at the headwaters of all the world's trouble. You trace everything back, every little trouble that we have, that we'll experience in the world, you trace it all, it all goes right back to this one moment here in Genesis chapter 3. This is the inciting incident that, that authors and story writers uh, refer to. This, this inciting incident ruins God's good creation. We saw in Genesis 1 and 2, God created this beautiful cosmos. He created in it a garden, the shalom, there's peace, there's human flourishing, God and man uh, working well together in relationship together, man and wife working well together, having this fruitful relationship with the world, um, cultivating, seeing its expansion and growth. And all of a sudden, that gets interrupted with what is known as the fall. Now, as we come to Genesis chapter 3, we have to realize that, that understanding this passage not only sheds light on how we got here. Genesis 3 not only makes sense of, of why um, things like what happened in Nashville earlier this week happened. Why there's such thing as addiction and abortion. Why there's threat of tornadoes and hurricanes and natural disasters. Why there's war and abuse and sexual perversion. All of these, these deformities in our world come back or trace back to this one moment. This moment sheds light on why things are the way that they are. But this moment also helps us to know how we can successfully navigate our way through this story of trouble. So that tragedy is not the sum of the story. That tragedy doesn't get the last word, but rather peace, shalom, wholeness, and flourishing get restored. This is what Genesis chapter three inclines us toward. Now, as we've been working our way through this, this sermon series called Origins, um, we left off last week in Genesis chapter two with a happy newlywed couple that is tending to the Garden of Eden, which is like a temple garden. 
And all of a sudden in verse one of chapter three, we see there is a, a new character who enters stage right. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Revelation 12, nine tells us that this crafty serpent is none other than Satan, the ancient serpent. There's a lot of misconceptions around Satan and what he's like and his, his modus operandi because we tend to think Satan is this like really ugly, deformed creature. And, and that's true in one sense, but he didn't start out that way. Originally, Satan was a beautiful angel. Uh, Ezekiel 28 tells us that his beauty made him proud. He, he wanted to take the place of God. Rather than being subject to God, he wanted to overthrow God. And, and what happened then was a cosmic insurrection. And in this cosmic insurrection, Satan emerges with this plan to corrupt and destroy God's good creation. Now, we got to ask the question, why doesn't Satan go after God Right? If he's got beef with God, why not attack God? Uh, why go after the creation instead of God himself? Well, the answer to that is Satan cannot hurt God. See, this is another piece of, of misconception that we have about Satan, that it's like almost God and Satan are equal in power. It's not true. Satan is a created being, subject to God. He is not equal and does not have the same kind of power that God does. And so what Satan does is go after the closest thing to God, which is in, uh, humans who have been made in the image of God. And so what we see here in, in, in Genesis 3 is Satan comes in, this, this serpent slithers his way into the Garden of Eden and prowls the corridors of creation looking for his target. And he's armed with weapons of mass destruction, lies. We're told that, that Satan is known as the deceiver. He takes truth and twists it. He tells lies and gets people to buy in on those lies. And so what he does is he comes and he finds his target and approaches the woman in verse one. And he comes and he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now here we see uh, Satan's tactic just right away, right out of the chute here. First, that when God initiates conversation and interactions with Adam and Eve, God goes to the man first. God, God goes to Adam. We talked about this last week as the head, the representative. God goes to the man first to interact with human beings. Adam, we see this in a couple places. Back, If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, where God creates man first, he, he puts him in the garden, tells him to take care of the garden. He gives him this responsibility, care for the garden. And then God gives Adam uh, the one rule for living in the garden of Eden. He says, there's one tree in here, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You gotta, don't eat, do not eat from this tree for the day that you eat of it, surely you will die. So he gives Adam this rule and then later on he creates woman. And so Adam is given this responsibility not only to tell the woman what the mission is, what our purpose here in the garden is, but to tell her and to, to, to remind her of, of the one rule that exists in the garden. Now what Satan does when he comes in, he bypasses this, this relationship and he goes straight to the woman and initiates with her. And you should see, look here, he says, um, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree? Any tree in the garden? 
what Satan is doing here is seed, planting seeds of distrust toward God and her husband. He's, he's provoking her a bit. Did, did God really say that? How do you, how do you know God? Did, he, did God tell you directly? How do you know? Can you trust your husband? Are you sure he's not making this whole thing up? He's planting those seeds of distrust. Now, one thing that we need to realize is that suspicion of God's word is the underlying attitude of all sin. See, the reason why you sin is because you don't believe God's word is true. If you believe God's word is true in real time, I think we could all assent to, if you're a Christian, you can say, yeah, I believe God's word is true. But in the moment, in the heat of temptation, the thing that pulls us away from obedience and faithfulness to God is the suspicion of, you know what? Maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe, maybe God's best or, or the best for my life is outside of God's will. And so it's that suspicion that drives us, that, that makes us suckers for Temptation. In fact, Romans 14, 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Right? Unfaith, unbelief is what causes sin. Before any sinful activities occur, this is where Satan attacks us. He's questioning God's truth. This is the core, the question. The key uh, temptation is, did God really say? Now, as, this, as the serpent asks this woman, did, did, God, uh, you know, did God really say, actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, God did give a rule regarding a tree, but he gave them all of the other trees in the garden to eat, to take the fruit and eat and enjoy. So Satan here is twisting the command. He, he's, he's stoking this suspicion and what we see with Eve here in verses two and three as we go on is, is that she partially corrects him. She goes on and says, um, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So yes, that's true, the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Well, God's command didn't say anything about Touching it. So she, she partially corrects him, but she also has something a little askew in her mind. And the, and the serpent retorts in verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He, making a mockery of God's word. You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's, he's tempting her with this idea that if you eat from this, you will be like God. Again, coming back, God's holding out on you. If you were just to ignore God, you could find a much better, more happy, more joyful life for yourself. Now, the irony of this whole scenario is that they're already created in the image of God. There is certainly a, a, a creator-creation distinction, but all of the things that God intended for humanity to have, Eve and Adam already had access to that. The, the joy, the delight of being made in the image of God. And Satan preys on this dreadful desire. We see that this lie gets lodged in her head. The, the fruit in verse six becomes desirable. 
that there's this gravitational pull to it now. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye, so her senses are involved, she sees it, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So, so there's this intellectual ascent, this tr- idea of transcendence that she's after. She took the fruit and ate. She took of its fruit and ate. See, as she bit into the lie of the serpent, it made her bite into the fruit. And and though she only broke one rule, it led to the brokenness of the whole cosmos. When she took and ate, it created a tidal wave of destruction, of death and decay, that, that every single negative effect that has happened under the sun, every, every bad thing, every little bit of trouble, and every subsequent curse stems from this one moment. That This one moment is the reason why I spent six hours underneath my car this week trying to fix what was broken. It's the reason why you pay an insurance premium every month. It's a reason why many of us were downstairs in our basement during the tornado warnings, right? This one moment led to every catastrophic and scary and frightful thing ever since. And while Eve messed up big, we must realize that Adam let it happen. The man was there with her. It says that that she took of the fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, this is a massive failure on Adam's part. He had every opportunity to say, whoa, 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 whoa. The rule that God gave us was not what you said it was. Here it is. He just said, listen, this, this creature, like, first of all, why are you talking to a snake? Like, that's a problem. We should deal with it. Right, Adam saw his, his wife being preyed upon and he let it happen. What Adam should have done was chase that snake away. He should have, he should have stomped that snake, put a knife to its jugular and, and ripped. But instead, his apathetic negligence led to the downfall of humanity. Now this... This moment here shows us that, and this this ties into what we talked about a couple weeks ago when we talked about men and women both being made in the image of God, but being made differently. So in the same way that men or women are created uniquely, men and women are tempted uniquely based upon our our inclinations and our our, the the things that we're, uh, uh, um, what's the word, Our, our proclivities. What we see this played out here in this moment is that Eve resists her husband's leadership. Adam abdicates his responsibility. And in this, they both are sinning. They're both, they're both seeking some kind of, of autonomy, which is really what sin is all about. It's trying to establish ourselves apart from God. It, sin says, I can be my own God. I can create my own law. So men and women, both, we, we all bow to the same idols. We bow to the idols of comfort, of pleasure, of security. Of, we, we bow to the same idols, but oftentimes we approach these idols from different directions. This, this goes into the way that we as men and women are uniquely inclined toward 
sin. Now, as Adam and Eve sin, they eat, we see that there's an awareness that suddenly comes over them. Their eyes were opened. Once they had both eaten, verse seven, their eyes were both open and they knew that we were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made, them, uh, uh, and made themselves loincloths. Now, where they were once joyful and unashamed, enjoying, naked, like that was literally the last thing that we saw in uh, chapter two is that they were naked and unashamed. That's what it was like to be in the Garden of Eden, naked and unashamed. And now things shift. So now they're afraid and ashamed of their nakedness. They're afraid in the sense they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which would have been an ongoing thing. Every day they had this appointment to stroll through the garden together, enjoy their company. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They were afraid. In fact, Adam goes on, he says, I heard the sounds of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Now for, for, for the very first time in human existence, Adam and Eve experience shame. Louis Smedes um, says that shame came into our lives to make us feel the truth of our condition. So shame is a feeling, shame, shame is a sense that we have. There, it, it, it's cognitive, it's in, in the heart. It, it works in different places. But shame testifies to our condition. The condition being that we are profoundly broken. That sin has disrupted, though we still maintain the Imago Dei, sin has, has desecrated the Imago Dei. Sin has, has ruined us in a way that is Profound and deep. Shame is one of the things that that plagues our society. And Adam and Eve's shame, when they experience it, it causes them to act like children who know they've messed up. Right? They knew they they knew they blew it. I mean, they all they, they had one rule in the whole garden, one rule and they mess it up. And so they hide. They, they hide from God. It's like a kid going to hide behind the couch. The kid that doesn't want to make eye contact, that's embarrassed, that's scared. That, that's, that's what shame had done to Adam and Eve. Instead of experiencing the freedom and the joy of being with God, now there is this reservation. Now that's, that's one of the, the instincts of shame. It's a reactionary mode that we have. When we feel shame, there's a temptation for us to uh, want to run and hide. It makes, shame makes us want to pull away from community when people hear just how broken we are. It makes us want to run and hide when life gets hard. We, we just don't want people to know that there's something wrong but shame isn't meant to drive us to run and hide. Shame is meant to be a grace from God that propels us toward God to seek healing, to seek cleansing, to find help and absolution so that we can be restored to wholeness. That is what shame, when rightly deployed, is for. Now, what we see is Adam and Eve don't seek God. They run and hide. But then what we see is, is, is profound is that God as they hide, God comes after them. 
God pursues them, not in a fit of rage, not in like a pulling his hair out, I can't believe what you just did, but in tenderness, he sought them. He pursues them in the midst of their brokenness. He doesn't stand back and wait for them to figure it out and then kind of come to grips with things. God, like a good dad, assesses the situation and pursues them. And he asks them, once he finds them, he says, what happened? What went wrong, Adam? What, what's going on? And he speaks directly to Adam. Again, this, this cadence of, of, of going to the man first, initiating with the man in verse um, nine. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, this is where things go sideways, by the way. He said, I hid myself. He said, who told you? Uh, where was the woman, he says, the man said, the woman who you gave me, okay, so check out this masterfully blame shifting. The woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit to eat, right? And I ate it. Okay, so Adam, he owns about like 10% of this whole deal. He's like, yeah, I ate it, but guess what? It was the woman, and now that I'm thinking about it, you gave me the woman, so really this comes back to you, God. It's your problem, <laughs> When the Lord says to the woman, he goes, what, what is it that you've done? And the woman says, well, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Right? You see all this blame shifting going on. Now, God isn't asking because he doesn't know what happened. God is omniscient. He knows what, tra what transpired. What God is looking for to see is, is there ownership? Is there responsibility? But instead of responsibility and Adam saying, you know what? This is on me. I failed. I led my, even though she kind of went on her own, I did not prevent her. I was the one who dropped the ball. I'm responsible for this thing collapsing. But what we say and see instead is blame shifting. And this exposes to us massive relational discord. We see relationship with God that is affected. Obviously, they're running and hiding. They're afraid to be with God. You see this blame shifting. That's not gonna go well. You just wait till the, the bedtime conversation that night. Not gonna be fun. And then there's this other relational element that, that now um, the environment that Adam and Eve occupy is, is corrupted, it's broken. There's something wrong with it. See, the thing that we need to see here is that sin destroys relationships. That, that's the essence, that's, that's what sin is after. Sin is here to destroy relationship. And from now on, things do not work the same. Things don't work as they were intended to work. On top of the immediate effects of feeling shame and hiding and fear, God then pronounces a threefold curse. Because sin always carries severe and lasting consequences. Take a look at this. He, he, he breaks up threefold in the sense the serpent gets a curse, the woman and the man. They, they each have their own uh, you know, element to the curse. He says to the serpent, verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's, there's enmity, there's discord, there's this cursedness that Satan has above all of the other creatures that have been made. To the woman, he says, 
excuse me, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. So we can imagine, we can speculate that, that at one point being fruitful and multiplying didn't involve uh, a bunch of pain and agony. In pain, you'll bring forth children. And, and then, so there's this, this the, the, her role in, in filling the earth and subduing it, there's gonna be difficulty in that. And then we talk about the relational discord. Your desire will be for your husband that you'll try to, you try to trump, trump him. You'll try to take over but then there's also this negative thing where, where he's going to try to dominate. He'll try to rule over you. The relational thing, that God, the harmony that God had created for men and women, for man and wife, is now massively disrupted. And then to Adam, he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. He's saying, your work will now be hard. But he says, uh, in pain you shall eat of, of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles. So now you can just imagine roses popping thorns and thistles popping up. You see these negative plants, these things that, that bring um, toil and frustration to tending to the ground. He says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So now the mission is compromised. The mission is now difficult and it'll be this way, it says, until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. You see how, how God has, has given different curses, just, just in the same way that, that men and women are created uniquely and tempted uniquely, there is a unique curse for men and women. Obviously, there's overlap here. But at the, at the very end of verse 19, you'll notice that there is very subtly placed a death sentence. He tells Adam, remember, as God formed Adam and breathed life into him, he says, you're from the, du from the dust of the ground and you will return to the dust of the ground. You are dust and to dust you shall return. Now, there's this sense where you look at this and be like, whoa, God, chill out. It was just an apple. Like, it was just a bite of food. It's not... That be, and, and so there's this temptation. We look at this and say, is God overreacting here? Well, no, he's not. Because he told them this would be, you know, here's the command and here's the blessing and the curse that's attached to it. He told them that on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, if on the day they will eat of it, they will surely die, why is it that Adam and Eve aren't just killed right there on the spot? Like a lightning bolt, just boom, game over. Was God just like blowing smoke to make them afraid, scare tactics? No. There was a very real death that occurred on that day. On the day they took the fruit and ate, Adam and Eve died spiritually. In the terminology of the Apostle Paul, he says that you, because we are offspring of Adam and Eve, we are dead in our sin. So even though we have life, even, even though we breathe, our bodies physically move, we are born in a state of corruption, of spiritual death. We're like dead men walking. And that is the state of all mankind. This, by the sin of one man, death entered. But now God's saying that there is a physical death that will come. There's a physical death that will come later and it has a 100% success rate so far. But this brings us back to the question, what, like, why didn't they physically die on that mo in that moment? And the answer is because God loves good stories. 
God loves redemption stories. God loves taking broken things, broken people, and and breathing a, a new life into them, restoring them, renewing them. If Adam and Eve were to have been struck down that day, that would have been the end of humanity, forever failures, no redemption, nothing but condemnation. But instead of killing Adam and Eve, which was the due penalty for their sin, God instead, God instead killed an animal in their place. You see this? If you go, uh, keep going on, in verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Where did those skins come from? Well, creatures. God sacrificed an animal, took its skin, and then fabricated a a more fitting attire than what they came up with earlier so that they would wear and to have something to protect them, to conceal their nakedness. In other words, God provided a substitute. He clothed them with the hide of that animal. Now here in this, we see God's provision for sinners. That Adam and Eve didn't deserve any of this. Yet God provided for them in a way that they couldn't do for themselves. Not only that, but God offers them protection. You may not, it may not like uh, register as that right away, but in verse 22, 23, um, the Lord, he says, behold, man's become like, like us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach his hand out and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken. He drove out the man and, and at the east side of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God's protection is shown to us in the fact that God removes them from the Garden of Eden, the place where the tree of life is, that if they're in this condemned state and they eat from that, their eternity will be an eternity of condemnation, cursed. But by putting up that flaming sword, God protects them and he cuts the days of trouble short. Now, this is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to earth, a fully God, fully man, as the true and better Adam. He's got way more rules to follow, but Jesus obeys the commands of God perfectly. He, he resists the temptation of the evil one, of the deceiver. In fact, every accusation, every half-truth that the devil spits out, Jesus spits right back at him the full truth of God, full octane. And he lives his perfect life by faith. And in heroic fashion, though Jesus deserves to have life and goodness and blessing, Jesus in heroic fashion lays down his life for humanity. Jesus becomes the animal, the sacrifice who pays the price for sin. And we see this when he's nailed to the cross and we're told that as Jesus is there on the cross, he despises the shame. He sees the shame, he experienced the shame, the brokenness and and weight of sin and, and Jesus absorbed it in himself so that he would take away the sins of the world, that he would be able to wash all who claim faith in Jesus clean. And all of this happens without compromising the justice and holiness of God, nor compromising God's love for his creation. 
What we see here on the cross is Jesus throwing himself on the flaming sword so that we could be brought back to relationship with God. This is the only way that we can be reconciled to God. There's no, there's no get your life together, some self-help stuff. There's no other religious angle to take. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come back to the Father except through him. And Jesus reconciles us to God, bringing restoration, redemption, so that all of the brokenness, the sadness of sin and death would be overturned that everything sad becomes untrue. So now, instead of being clothed by the, by the hide of, of animals, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're not defined by your failures you're not defined by the things that you've left undone. You are defined by the full, complete, and perfect work of Christ. So you are no longer naked. There's no, no reason to be ashamed for there's now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But not only does Jesus clothe us in his righteousness, he gives us another layer of clothing. In Ephesians 6, we're told of the armor of God. Right? Uh, it, this helmet, this breastplate, belt, sword. We've got more hardware to wear. Not only do we have the righteousness of Christ, but in the gift of the armor of God, we have God's protection. We have the weaponry we need that when, when the, the nasty lies of the serpent pop up, we can take that sort of truth and just chop that bad boy down. That we can slay the dragon because Christ has ultimately delivered the, the death blow to Satan. See, this is what enables us to navigate our way through this, this troubling story that, that God has provided every single need. He's given us the protection that we need to fight sin, to resist temptation, and to live righteously before God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the only way that this is possible is that Jesus has come. Jesus lived the perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. He gave the death blow to Satan on the Christ and then raised by the power of God so that at, in his resurrection, we too are raised with Christ and we are now conquerors with Christ, more than conquerors with Christ. This means that the story of brokenness, the story of trial, uh, of, of futility, it doesn't get the last word. God's grace gets the last word. God's power gets the last word. This is... This, this, this one moment, this moment of trouble launches us towards our longing for Christ to come and make all things right. This is what we have to look forward to as Christians, that, that one day God will restore all things and not, not just take us back to Eden, but take us to an Eden that's even more glorious than the one before. That, that God will be there in our midst. No more hiding, no more running, no more shame, no more tears. Everything is right. And just as there's a meal, Genesis 3, the meal of Genesis 3 marks the downfall of humanity. Christ gives us a meal to remember the rise of humanity through the gospel. 
See, as the woman took and ate of the fruit, Jesus says to his disciples, here is my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, take and eat. See, Jesus is redeeming that whole narrative, the take and eat thing, redeemed in Christ. So now as we come and and share the Lord's Supper together, we realize that Jesus is the hero, not you, not me, not any of us. Christ has come. He's died, he's risen. And he's with us now today, ruling and reigning. And one day his kingdom will be established and consummated forever. And glory will abound. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace that even in the midst of our brokenness, and and there may be people in here in this room right now today that just feel broken, that their hearts are, are in anguish, that, that there's there's, they've done too many bad things or there's, there's just too much stuff going on in their life that, that there's no way that they can come forward to you. I pray that this morning that those who have not yet put their faith in Christ would see that Jesus is the sacrifice who covers the sins of the world. That, they, that you would give them the gift of faith and, and by your grace would they cling to that promise, that hope. And I pray for us who are Christians, Lord, I pray that, that that hope would swell up in us, especially as we come to the Lord's table, would we be reminded that you are, are the God of redemption, that you make all things right. And we pray that this meal would, would help um, be a, a spiritual sustenance for us in this work that you're doing where you're renewing us, you're sanctifying us. Would you empower us spiritually, Lord, to, to go at this in your power? by your will, for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.